You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. October 4th, 1957. A tiny beeping orb with protruding metal legs was all it was. Yet it terrified a nation and it changed politics in a way that is still here today with one of the major issues of 2022. Luther Dorset, I clearly remember sitting in front of a black and white TV watching football when the network broke in with the news. Another eyewitness was Sergei Khrushchev. Yes, his father led the Soviet Union at the time. His father was at a late reception in Kiev, Ukraine, when the aides called him to the telephone. He emerged smiling, Khrushchev said. An artificial satellite of the Earth was just created, and we, the Soviets, did it first. On the other side of the planet, reaction was swift. President Eisenhower consulted his generals for answers. How could this happen? One person with the answer was rocket scientist Werner von Braun. He knew that he had asked for budget to do exactly this, make an artificial satellite, and it was removed. Now everyone was talking about this Russian orb, Soon they'll be dropping bombs from outer space, said Lyndon Johnson, Senate Majority Leader at the time and a chief spokesperson for the Democratic Party. Like kids dropping rocks from the freeway at the overpass. Now it wasn't all shock and fear. It was also good politics. And I suspect Johnson knew it as much as other Democrats, showing the Eisenhower administration led by a general turning their strength into a weakness, showing that they were slow on the Russians, was a way of maybe turning the White House over. Eisenhower played it down publicly. His chief of staff, Sherman Adams, said, We aren't interested in playing interstellar basketball. It's true, this Sputnik thing was pretty small. I saw a model of it once, and it's, that, I mean, it struck me in the Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian. I said, Is that it? This little thing? But people didn't know how much it could do or what they were going to do next. The reaction in the U.S. was more like the Edwin Marcus cartoon that showed an Uncle Sam roused out of bed, seeing the satellite out of his window. The public was scared, their representatives ready for action. And some of the solution, it seemed, was education. The Soviets had scientists. We didn't have enough of them. They had mathematicians. 
We didn't have enough of them. Even if we did, private companies operating those newfangled computers were gobbling them up. The lack of intellectual muscle in the United States government was seen. Not only was it being beat to launch, but then the United States fails several launches after Sputnik and doesn't get their own satellite up until 1958. It's almost too late to matter. It's not surprising, then, that the higher educational aid from the federal government begins with Sputnik, the aid for those at least who are not in uniform. The National Defense Education Act, NDEA, is passed in 1958 and includes monies for education for science and math and other subjects. And it's not just passed in 1958 to help school children. It's downright weaponized. It's passed for defense. One billion dollars over seven years to ensure trained manpower to meet defense needs. It reads like we're making a missile. Something else to put in this context. More Americans simply are going to college in the 1950s, and that's with no help at all. Uh, Seven times as many in 1960 as in 1943.6 million students. And 10 years later, that will double. There's a lot of reasons. College isn't what it used to be. It hadn't been for some time. It wasn't just going off to college to become a minister, as in early America, or a teacher, or a lawyer. Urbanization, improvement in the economy, more colleges simply, jobs requiring more specialization of skills. All of these are factors For some of these students, it's the two GI Bills that would get them to college. The first ones passed in 1944, Franklin Roosevelt in Congress, honoring vets who served in World War II, and then a Korean War GI Bill after that war. The GI Bill passes without much trouble, and it wasn't like it was completely undebated. Some terms are. For instance, The idea of granting college funds to just every veteran was debated. Are we making a bum out of G.I. Joe? Was a headline that was in the Saturday Evening Post around the time of the debate of the first G.I. Bill. Are we just giving them money and turning them from these really active soldiers into people who are just laying on a couch, getting their education for free? A lot of this came out of the fact that it was found that some of the college money was wasted. And money designated for true colleges went to colleges in quotes. Some were just whipped up trade schools with no intention of getting jobs and offering skills that weren't really in demand as much as they said. Some were retail stores. So you'd go to the retail store and they'd have a class on the side. The GI would come out with $100 or with goods. School would take the money. A staunch opponent of all this was Texas U.S. Senator Olin Teague. As you know, of course, there's much debate going on in the Senate right now. And the last few days I've been over in the Senate uh, quite a bit on a conference on our space authorization bill. Teague was wounded in World War II. He had earned three Purple Hearts. He didn't think vets should get anything unearned. Ideally, Teague had something to say about it. It would be only wounded vets that would get educational funds. Now, that was a losing battle. The ones I talked to seemed to think that they have the votes to take some action. So he at least wanted it for combat vets alone. And he cracked down on fraudulent schools, held hearings, 
asked the Department of Justice to crack down on them. He shut many down. He was instrumental in denying aid to schools that had 85% veteran enrollment and getting that change. If you're only getting 15% or less from regular average Americans who aren't getting money from the government, are you really a college, Teague would ask. Something was wrong if you couldn't. The Korean War GI Bill gave Teague a chance to write legislation and improve. Instead of the government paying schools, they would just pay the students. It wouldn't be the first time that educational funds led to questions of how higher education money was being spent and what constitutes higher education. These are questions that still exist today. I should note that none of what we've talked about so far has anything to do with loans. They are related, though, because the granting of monies is what begins the formation of the student loan program that we have that now inarguably is a student loan crisis. $1.7 trillion in debt owed by Americans on loans they took for higher education. Where did it begin? Well, some tiny part of it could just be American values. Education certainly is one of them. Gentlemen have to pay for their sons in one year more than they spent themselves in the whole four years of their course. Not unfrequently, they are called upon for twice or three times the amount which, at a former day, was sufficient for themselves through the entire period of their residence at college. How shall this alarming evil be checked? That could be written today, but it was written in 1875 in the New York Times. It just highlights that college cost has been a concern for a long time. But we've seen an evolution from a concern of, say, the well-to-do about maybe we're excluding anyone who's not to a concern, will we ever be able to do this, to a concern that I know I have to do this and there's going to be a cost to now where it's like I did it and we're saddled with life-changing debt. The man sits on the chair, gazing into the field, watching the students go to school. He is a man of bronze, sitting in pilgrim clothes, a book in his right hand, his left hand held by his side, his cloak open, and a diligent stare, one open to learning and education through his eyes. He is John Harvard. And thus, I don't have to tell you, this is no trick question what college's yard this statue is looking out on. Except to say this, it's not really John Harvard. It's the representation of what John Harvard might have looked like, according to the statue builder, Daniel Chester French. French, or no one, knew there's no picture of John Harvard, no painting, nor description, really. It's not really known even if Harvard was the founder of the first true college in the New World, the English-speaking New World, that bears his name, a prestigious college then and now. French, in the absence of a visage, decided to pick someone from an old Massachusetts family, figuring that his face would reveal some features of his ancestors. And he settled on Sherman Hoare a student who would later be a Democratic congressman who sat in a chair and was willing to model. It didn't hurt that 
Hoare's father, Ebenezer Hoare, was on the governing committee of Harvard. John Harvard may or may not be a founder. All that's really known is he bequeathed money. He had lived in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and bequeathed money when he died, as well as 400 books to get this university going. So in 1639, the college was named after him. For good luck, tourists who see the John Harvard statue touch his toe. I don't know why. Eight presidents would go to the school named after him. John Adams, Johnson Quincy, Rutherford B. Hayes, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. Harvard is the oldest college, but 60 years later, Virginia would build its own very prestigious school, the College of William and Mary. Then you'd see others, St. John's in Maryland, Yale in 1701, first as a theology school, then offering humanities. Ben Franklin and others would get together the University of Pennsylvania in 1755. U Delaware was already founded, known as the Free School. Princeton, Augusta, now called Washington and Lee, Dartmouth, Dickinson, Georgetown, eventually Columbia, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, all of these would be constructed. And it should not be surprising in a country that was founded on self-reliance, that learning would be a priority, that resisted getting knowledge just through doctrinal means. You have to read and understand and be able to think. I want to avoid just saying Protestant values, right? Because there's other religions that really value education. Um, You have that whole Jesuit tradition. You have many religions. But in the beginning, that's what you have principally in America. And there's a real fear of being anything less than able to think on your feet read the Bible, read other things, write, communicate to others. So there's a push for colleges. There's a connection between these colleges and leadership of the nation, too. A somewhat frightened 15-year-old John Adams goes to Harvard in 1751. He doesn't have that John Harvard statue to comfort him. He's a little nervous. He's been sponsored by his town. They put together money to help this not-so-well-to-do member of the Adams family. His local tutor was supposed to go with him, but he took ill that day. Adams was very anxious. He nearly, by his own account, turned around and stayed home, but he's not going to shame his family. He goes alone to Harvard and greets the lead faculty and the college president on his first day. He's immediately given a passage of Latin to translate and goes through it nervously. Good Lord. There's Latin words that he doesn't remember. Is he going to flunk his first test? When the president of Harvard takes young John Adams by the hand and directs him to the college library, there is a Latin dictionary there. He's allowed to use it. His translation and his other work at Harvard is excellent. John Adams is offered the opportunity to speak. And in this, he earns a role of as a teacher, people notice him and hire him as a teacher. In a way, Harvard would make Adams who he was. His father, who was a clergyman, wanted John Adams to become one as well. Adams wanted to be a lawyer, and Harvard gave him that chance. The money that he made from being a teacher gave him the legal tuition that he would never have gotten from his family. First co-patriot, Thomas Jefferson, he, at 17 years old, went to the College of William and Mary. 
conducted his learning there. As a student, he meets the governor of Virginia. He starts to get interested in Virginia politics. Later, Jefferson would go on to found a college of his own, the University of Virginia. He's very involved in this. His design for it called it an academical village. Professors would live around a lawn, students in between the professors. A rotunda library would be part of this, a paradise of academic exchange, all with a view of the mountains. Indeed, the framers, the early Americans who had a role in starting the country and the the first presidents were very involved with colleges. It can't be incidental. George Washington donates a large amount to Augusta University, and he seeks to found a national university. He buys a lot in Washington, D.C. with his own funds, specifically for the purpose of his dream for a national university where people all over the nation can come to one place. From New England, from the South, to one university where they can become upstanding Americans. James Madison goes to Princeton, Hamilton to Columbia, where he draws upon that student body to form an artillery company. It goes on. American presidents favoring education. Lincoln's significant domestic achievement, if you take away the Civil War and the Union cause, and if you take away the Transcontinental Railroad. His significant act was the Morrill Act, where the federal governments gave the states land. That land could be sold or simply used by the states for the purpose of founding universities, really colleges at that time. And generally, their agricultural colleges, improving agricultural growth and technologies, mechanical colleges, teachers' colleges, things like that. Here's what they're not, which was the most present type of college at that time. They're not theological colleges. They're not colleges based on a particular religion. If you had a Cornell If you go to Clemson, if you go to Nebraska, University of Nebraska, Washington State, you're going to a Moral Act College. Rutgers, New Jersey, Iowa State, University of Wisconsin, University of Missouri. Justin Smith Morrill, congressman from Vermont, pushes this legislation. This is what he says. This bill proposes to establish at least one college in every state upon a sure and perpetual foundation, accessible to all but especially the sons of toil, where all of the needful science for practical avocations of life shall be taught, where neither the higher graces of classical studies nor that of military drill our country so greatly appreciates will be entirely ignored, and where agriculture, the foundation of all present and future prosperity, may look for troops of earnest friends. At least 106 colleges are created with the Morrill Act, and a second act in 1890 is going to create 19 black colleges and universities. Lincoln supports this, signs it, supports it. Woodrow Wilson makes his career in academia before the presidency, graduates Princeton in 1879, becomes a professor, and then the college president. By the time he does, America has 1,000 colleges, turn of the century. His is one of the tops, especially a choice for Southerners going north for education like James Madison did. And Wilson not unlike Jefferson, is interested in not just what the students learn, but also where the students sit, eat, and live. He surely does care about what they learn. He feels Princeton's education is too general, too loose when he was a student there. Pick a major, for God's sakes, all of this wandering around academically. 
He proposes a staggering $12 million plan for Princeton, 25 times the school's budget. He gets the board of directors to approve it. He wants to double the faculty and have the students live in quads. Freshmen, sophomore, junior, senior, all of Princeton's students mixed, and they would eat together, live together. This would create a wholesome spirit he found wanting in Princeton's current system, which had eating clubs that you had to be approved for membership in. So cliquish. Such a waste of time, too, with students thinking about getting approved to eating clubs instead of just, I suppose, eating and learning. Distracting and counterproductive, he said. Wilson didn't get his quads. He did get the faculty. He did get the change in majors. But alumni didn't like the plan to lose the eating clubs. And the board of directors' support was taken away. Among the reasons the future president didn't get his quad system was what a former president did. Grover Cleveland, member of the board of directors, not a Princeton man, but a member of the board of directors. He didn't want to rattle the alumni. And no surprise, Cleveland thought the whole spending was a little bit high. Woodrow Wilson didn't make out so badly as it turned out. He might not got his plan for president of Princeton, but he reckoned that the trustees of the university and their sagacity were among those to kick me upstairs to the governorship and then to the presidency. Seventy years later, Princeton did build a college, something like what Wilson wanted, with six dorms and an eating center. It was named after Woodrow Wilson. Because of Wilson's racist views, his name was removed in 2020. Where students sit and live and eat was a presidential concern then, at least two presidents, and not all unrelated into the, to, that, to the student loan debate that's going on now, as we'll get into. But before we spoil the idea too much, let's talk about this. The ideal is not incidental to learning where people are. You know, at least Jefferson thought so, and Wilson thought so. That's what might have been on the minds of Boston University in 1990 when they created a new thing, the Superdorm, a glass and steel tower, a sleek yuppie condo, the New York Times called it. It cost 100000 for every student then living in it. Private bedrooms, each with a fridge. Why, Mr. Carlson had to bring his own tiny mini fridge with him to his dorm to store his... Uh, Soda pop. Not to be undone by Boston. MIT built one as well. New York University built a 95 million 16 tower building east of Union Square Park in New York City. It's large, and I was once in it. I had a friend who was an RA there. It contained a dance studio, a gym. Parents want to know that their kids are cared for, the architect said. Of course they do. But they have to pay for it as well. Someone pays for campus living. Now... Maybe it's only the students who choose to live on campus, so you can say by not living on campus. That's mostly true, though tuition bills, as we'll get into, are rarely that transparent. Monies can be spread. Things like staff and infrastructure can be spread along. But it is true that only those who live on campus get a, get a housing fee. That is certainly true. It's also true that student housing, having students live there and more and more students choosing to live on campus in America than the American past and in America versus other countries, say Canada, say France, is a contributor to the student loan growth, has been, will be. The College Board says 50% of a student's cost is housing. Back to the presidents. 
education, including higher education, was not a small thing to them. They were all involved. John Quincy Adams pledged 25000 of his own fortune, millions today, to the concept of a national university. That national university that George Washington died before being able to complete. He also gave it space in three of his State of the Unions, then only written, not delivered in front of Congress. Yet Congress didn't respond to his messages. It was never built. The National University was seen as elitist, unconstitutional, perhaps, consolidationist. You know, everything wrong for the Republic. One place in the capital city that all the elites would go to and what? Stay there? No, no, no. Plus, it would deprive all these wonderful local colleges we're now building of their place. And it would be just a source of favoritism. Are these national university graduates going to get all the jobs? It never happened. The first great lesson which the college graduate must learn is the lesson of work rather than criticism. Criticism is necessary and useful. It's often indispensable, but it can never take the place of action. The doer of deeds counts in the battle of life. Surprise, surprise, that's Theodore Roosevelt, and he didn't like that aspect of college life, all the eliteness that it could produce, the softness, maybe. But he liked Harvard, he liked his college, he liked the people there, he built networks there, some of his rough riders came from there, some of the people in his administration were from Harvard, and he parried the blows of those who took aim as college people entering politics. There were a lot of people who thought politics wasn't good for college men. Educational institutions, if they are to do their best work, must keep in touch with the life of the nation at the present day. That's what he thought was important yet. Theodore Roosevelt was not ready yet to fund education from the U.S. Treasury. That would evolve later. It takes a while for the association of college with the normal things of American life. It's still pretty extraordinary at this point. You don't see it, for instance, extensively as part of, say, the New Deal. We're just trying to feed ourselves in the Great Depression. We're coming out of World War II. The 1950s, you start to see this with televisions, cars. I know college is something as a goal. And then Sputnik. By the 1960s, an Ohio governor, John Rhodes, was promising a college 30 miles from any household in Ohio. He's a Republican. He's a conservative. He's going to be the guy that speaks out against the students after Kent State happens in one of those colleges. But he's for college for Americans. But that's something that evolves. Lyndon Johnson becomes president in 1963, not just a criticizing senator anymore. And he begins building his great society. Here the seeds were planted from which grew my firm conviction that for the individual, education is the path to achievement and fulfillment. And for the nation, it is a path to society that is not only free but civilized. And for the world, it is the path to peace. For it is education that places reason over force. The government is already funding higher education somewhat with the National Defense Education Act. But it's barred a bit, but he wants to expand it. And he makes it clear those who can go to college, who are qualified, should be going to college, should not be denied because of lack of money. 
His Higher Education Act of 1965 calls for low-interest loans with no underwriting, loans that maybe a bank wouldn't perform otherwise, so the federal government will guarantee it. If banks have a hard time, require more funding. Eventually, we're going to include provisions, too, for grants to students, though the program is limited. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. A man in a Brooks Brothers tweed gets off the bus. He goes in a neighborhood that one might consider his ilk not so nice and walks around. Few would realize that he is a senator. He goes and talks to people in coffee counter at the laundromat. Says, hi. I'm Senator Pell, Claiborne Pell. He was an unlikely figure to have an aid program named after them, really. The way he looked and carried himself, you might just think he was one of those senators that was going to pass his time, the old man's club, say, of the Senate. Victorian appearance, wealthy man, Brooks Brother collared shirt, summers in Newport style, tortoiseshell glasses. John F. Kennedy said he'd never win an election. Yet he won every one that he ran in. Rhode Island's a small state, so he would take his unshined shoes and ride those buses, talk to people, meet with people. He was a Princeton grad, yet he had a knack for knowing what people needed. Providence had a large Portuguese population, so he strengthened laws that they needed for relatives to immigrate. Pell didn't have a lot in common with his constituents, said Joe Biden at his funeral. Yet, Pell had a way. He also operated by a set of rules. He expected senators to do the same, to be gentlemanly. Marcus of Queensbury. He wouldn't run a negative ad. When an opponent called him a cream puff, he got a local baker to endorse him. And he compromised. A half loaf can feed an army sometimes, he used to say. But there was one issue he wasn't interested in on compromise. He felt that college should be a right. There should be an amendment to the Constitution to provide college scholarships as a matter of right. And there should be an amendment in statute, in legislation to fund it. He wanted $3.3 billion. 
astronomical amount of money at that time. And as it may seem that, I believe this is the sort of commitment to open the doors of opportunity from the ghetto to the suburbs, so Pell said. He proposed his bill in 67, 68, 69, 70, and 71. He never quite got the full 3.3 billion spaceship-level money. And he had to settle for that half loaf. But he find a willing president. One in a party opposite from his own. Richard Nixon takes over from Lyndon Johnson as president in 1969. His focus is what we now identify as cultural politics, style, especially around anything having to do with the South or Southerners, winning over Southerners, now converting the GOP Southern strategy. He's not an out-to-get-the-great-society type guy. In fact, Nixon always describes himself a liberal on health care. And on many issues, he proposes solutions. He'll drop the freezing of the great society and he'll attack any excesses. But he doesn't want to anger Lyndon Johnson nor the many Democrats that still haven't fully converted to the GOP at the time that Richard Nixon is president. Where a program's good, he'll jump on it. Higher education is one of these areas where he picks up the mantle from Lyndon Johnson. Nixon tells Congress in 1970 that he demands that no student who is qualified should be denied college. It's the same thing that Lyndon Johnson had said before. He then criticizes in Congress in his 1971 message for not acting. Nixon expands the Basic Opportunity Grant, which will be named after Senator Pell. But there's trouble with Pell Grants because they are for lower-income people. What about all those hard-working middle-class folks? This is the criticism that gets leveled. And throughout the 70s, you're going to start to hear quite a bit about the middle class, not poor enough to receive benefits and not rich enough to not have to worry about the cost of things. At least this is the perception. We all know it's not necessarily true, right, that in that lower income group is a lot of awfully hardworking people. Nixon and Congress have a solution for that. Follow what is being done in the housing market from the New York Times at the, of, of, in the early 1970s. At the heart of the president's plan is a proposed device aimed at increasing by more than $1 billion in the first year and considerably more thereafter the funding available for college students. This student loan association would be financed by the sale of stock to foundations, colleges, and financial institutions. Now, that is going to be Nixon's solution and the Congress at this time, not wanting to fund everything, not having the kind of finances to just provide every student in America a grant, comes up with this device. It's worked in housing to increase home ownership greatly. It's something we're not even quite aware of. Um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, unless you're in a home buying process right at the current time. But it would be enormously difficult to get uh, bank financing for the mortgage in the way that we do. In other words, 30-year loans, for instance. There's not a bank that wants to um, take a loan that long. We don't even know if the bank will be around in 30 years the way things are going, right? doesn't matter because you have Fannie Mae there buying up loans. And this is exactly what they propose 
with education loans. A student loan association will provide financing for loans for people that you normally wouldn't be able to write loans for and at greater expenditure. So what's the trade-off? It sounds all good. Well, the trade-off is that despite the name Student Loan Association almost makes it seem like students are loaning out the money or it's an association of students. It is not. It's an association of financial interests. In the beginning, it includes financial interests that are colleges. For instance, Harvard University puts in $100,000 to start the uh, Sally Mae going. And so do many other colleges. Yale is involved. MIT is involved. Going well into the 1980s, Harvard is the number five stockholder of Sally Mae. So some colleges are actually benefiting from these loans over the years. It's increasing their endowments, and eventually they're getting very um, valuable shares of a, of a profitable corporation. So we've created... A corporation that has investors. It's something that people think when they hear Student Loan Association or Sally Mae, they think that it's just part of the federal government. It's not, but it has, like Fannie Mae does, an implied connection to the federal government, an association through the marketing of federally guaranteed loans at this time. Okay. And Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, exactly the same thing. There was always an implied connection with the government, even though under the Johnson administration, it was sold and brought out into the market. It was opened up into the, it became its own self-sufficient market um, entity. And however, there was always that perception among investors and customers that this is backed up by the federal government. And look, in the case of Fannie Mae, look what happened in 2000. 2008. In the end, they were put into conservatorship for a while. So this is the point. He created a corporation. Sally Mae doesn't make loans in the beginning. It does now. It merely bought up federal government loans and serviced them. That's how Fannie Mae works in the housing market. That's not how Sally Mae, also called Navigant, they split up into two names in order because Sally Mae just frankly isn't very popular right now, principally earns its money. It sells private loans where interest is charged If you go back to the New York Times article from the early 1970s, they're saying loans will be offered at rates as low as 3%. But what Sally Mae generally gets its money from is loans where the interest is charged, and it can be up to 12% or more. And they also get their fees from collecting on those loans and some other fees and services. Today, it's not a popular company. A breezing look at consumer affairs reveals a litany of complaints from students who, at 18 or so, perhaps with their parents' assistance, got a loan and now have to pay for it. They call me 10 times a day. It's like dealing with a loan shark. They sold my daughter and her mother a loan at 12%. Now, I know a little bit about the cost of finance at the time they made the loan. The capital cost was just 1%. I told them, I no longer work, said one borrower. They don't care. You guys are enslaving people. Customer service is like speaking to a robot. I'm throwing $900 a month into a black hole. These are just a few. There's a few good reviews. They're awfully hard to find. Also controversial, Sally Mae is a corporation. Therefore, it can, as corporations can, donate 
in politics, and it's very politically active. In almost every year, 2020 was a little bit of an exception. They donated. They're not huge amounts. You're talking about like $5,000 donations to various PACs. They do add up when some of the same people are behind PACs. In 2020, they were almost equal between Democrats and Republicans. That's a rare year for Sally Mae. Generally, they're donating to Republicans. The type of Democrats they're donating to would be, first of all, it's a Delaware corporation and Chris Coons is their senator. They donate to Chris Coons and various PACs that he runs, Kristen Cinema, John Tester is where he was in Montana. So a little bit more conservative Democrats and they donate to a lot of Republicans. You may raise a question about that. If you're a quasi government agency, you know, why are you donating in politics? They're going to say, like any American corporation will say, the Citizen United decision, we can donate. And we have interests. And these are Republicans and Democrats who are putting forward the interest of having Sally Mae financing student loans. It's here in the early 1970s where you can identify an issue that what has been created will later be called by many a monster, a, a, an entity that now loans out money and collects on it. And makes loans that are no that are private loans now, no longer just buying up government back loans. So the student loan debate is going on. You see Biden with a proposal to perhaps remove as much as ten thousand dollars in student loan debt. I'd predict he'd probably go higher uh, if he does it at all. We'll see about that. Before we get to that, it's useful to see some of the steps from Sally May's creation to now. And the current president is actually, because of his long time in American politics, is by no means a bystander in student loans. Not his fault. I think that would be overly reductive. There was a little bit of talk about that in the 2020 primary, that how could you nominate Biden because he created the student loan problem? I, I think that goes way too far. It's a cosmic problem, really, with a lot of parts to it that we're going to get into involving funding mechanisms, costs, the bucket of educational services, so many things. But yet he's not a bystander, the current president, Joe Biden. When he arrives as a beaming youngster into the Senate, a surprise win from a Republican state of Delaware at that time, this problem is live. And there's actually a new problem that's being noticed. Student defaults, baby boomers, essentially, taking loans, and then not paying. It's not an overwhelming amount. It's actually higher now. It's about 18% at the time a congressional committee will find. It's about 25 now. But there's a difference. The old defaulters could do this. They could technically skip town, ignore the bills. There would be some effort to collect some things mail, but not the kind of intensive 10 calls a day you might get now. And they could even declare bankruptcy. Congress is worried about this. We're guaranteeing these loans and people can go become a doctor and then just skip town and not pay us, not pay their fellow taxpayers. It's a huge problem. And Congress does what it best does. It forms a commission to study the problem. Loan Dodgers. The Congressional Commission on the Bankruptcy Laws of the United States looks at this and a lot of other things and actually finds it's not the huge problem that you think it is. Only about 1% of those defaulters are declaring bankruptcy. But among their recommendations, 
and not their most forceful ones. A chart uh, has a bunch of recommendations and shows like what the percentage of effectiveness is. Has this one a 50-50 was to put student loans beyond bankruptcy discharge. So you couldn't go before a judge and get rid of your student loans. Despite the congressional recommendation saying this isn't as big of a problem as you think. And I've actually looked at this chart and and a little triangle that shows the poll. There are several ways to reduce bankruptcy discharging besides this. Congress jumps on it. In 1976, Section 439A of the Higher Education Act reauthorization puts student loans beyond bankruptcy discharge until the borrower can show seven years of repayment. Joe Biden is a young senator. He's facing what will be his toughest re-election in 1978. You can look at this both ways. He wants a bill that will help students get more people to college and help costs. And he also has to get the votes from others who are worried about the cost and worried about all these loan-dodging students. Not to mention, he comes from Delaware. You're just seeing the beginnings, late 70s, 80s, of Delaware as the key financial state, really the first state of finance. If you notice, so many credit card bills are coming from there. And Delaware has some very pro-banking rules, uh, very pro-corporate rules. It's a favorite for corporations to locate in. These are among the reasons Biden supports this. The only exceptions are cases of undue hardship. Congress doesn't debate what that means. It's become a pretty high hurdle. Really, disability or taking care of a disabled dependent is where it remains today. So it's not Biden alone that passes this. This is the Congress overwhelmingly removing this. It's then codified in the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 1978 in the bankruptcy laws, putting student loans into the bankruptcy code. In August 79, it's expanded to any type of government-backed educational loan. In 1984, it includes vocational schools. In 1990, it includes interest fees. Strengthened further in 2005, Biden is either voting for or in support of each one of these changes. But to be fair, again, I don't want to just jump on Biden. It's easy to do. Um, Senator from Delaware, where the key industry is credit. However, he's also helping to pass the Middle Income Student Assistance Act during the Carter administration, which eliminates income restrictions on previous loan programs. This is a big thing during Carter. You know, he looks at a middle class tax cut. Now he wants to do middle class assistant act. It's like, we don't just want to help the poor. We want to help those who are in the middle as well. Biden also writes legislation that helps plus loans. So parents could make loans to help their students. He's instrumental in making those loans non-dischargeable. He also supports the changing of how interest rates are determined on student loans from a government body who sets the rates to using the market to to set where bank rates are. In 1986, in the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, Congress extend, expands Linda Johnson's 21-year-old program and adds students in default could not receive new assistance. Biden is absent, but he voices support for it. But here's the thing. Biden and others who enacted all of these programs that required a lot of compromise are increasing a social good. More people are going to college who couldn't afford it. And it also is increasing a social problem. Growth in loans is 10 times between 77 and 89. There's another side to all this, of course. If now Americans are saddled with debt, $1.7 trillion, and that's because of greed in the past, 
They weren't so much because of frugality. They were not spending for college. So yeah, no loans, but also no college, no education, no societal benefits, no income benefits. More students go to college now than did when Sally Mae was created. But indeed, it's an issue. 45 million Americans owe student loans. 1.7 trillion, 60% of all students, 77% of African-American students love loans. People with kids denying their kids education funds because of their own loans. People in their 60s paying off student debt. You're hearing these stories. Average of 39,000, one in seven, over 50,000. And it holds back the economy. There's been studies demonstrating the effect on home ownership, on starting a new business. It's the largest debt of any saved mortgages. Larger than any credit card debt or any kind of consumer debt. Any kind of consumer debt. 325 organizations, states, attorney generals, American Federation of Teachers, the NAACP, public citizen, all are urging President Biden to do something about the problem. According to polls, so do most Americans. The student loan issue is popular despite some of the criticism that you might be giving a handout. Reagan's first term sees 594 a million cut in student assistance out of the budget, 338 million in Pell Grants. He wants to cut that provision in the Middle Income Assistance Act, which eliminates income restrictions on loan programs, and he does. His Secretary of Education, Gary Jones, said the administration is beginning a fundamental philosophical switch to traditional emphasis on parent and student responsibility for educational costs. In other words, you pay for it yourself. Education is the responsibility of state and local systems. Billions of dollars in Pell Grant cuts over his time from where they would have been projected to be. Guaranteed student loans are only for those making less than 30000 about 100000 today. 60% of those attending MIT cannot qualify for guaranteed student loans, to put that in perspective. He throws out red meat while he's doing it. There are families earning $100,000, getting government grants and loans. Marlon Fitzwater, the president's spokesperson afterwards, when asked by a reporter, cannot confirm where this data came from of these families, but he throws it out. Claiborne Pell is outraged, still a senator at this time. How can we be an opportunity society for cutting these budgets? It's dramatic for a lot of people that thinking we were going to have growth over time in, in granting. Ring calls his plan reasonable and just. Yes, families may have to make some difficult adjustments, but we avoid the more painful adjustment of living in a wrecked economy. So I want to just take this point of view and not just cast it aside for a second. He is talking about you're trading uh, some grant money for better economic opportunity. So to be fair, with room and board in his time, it cost um, 10000 to go to college. So you're talking about 2500 a year to go to college if it was room and board, about 1000 without it. GDP grows 6%. In his first term, median income was going up 7.3%. So your average $25,000 salary in a family becomes, say, twenty-seven or 30000 during his term because of the improved economy. If your student's going to college, take it out of that economic performance that I gave you. Now, of course, you know, so that's the logic. But of course, um, this assumes that you agree that it's his policies that caused it, and it's also you assume, agree that you couldn't do both, like we did, say, during another economic boom, during the late Clinton administration, where 
Pell Grants were increased, and the economy grew. Indeed, there's a little bit of a mea culpa, a little bit, on domestic spending in the Reagan second term. When they start to realize that these drastic cuts, they're not getting the economic juice that they thought necessarily out of them, that they can tie it to them. Still exploding the deficit in any case, and there's a lot of complaints, including from Republican senators and congressmen. So Pell Grants do go up in Reagan's second term, but it's slight, from $2.7 billion to $2.8 billion per year during his term. And uh, thank you for your introduction. And may I congratulate all six of these guys that spelled out the six educational goals, reminding us of what our national goals are. And I asked one of them if he was nervous. He shook me off, said no. I don't believe him, but uh, he did a first-class job, all of them, every one of them. You really do see that it's in George H.W. Bush, kinder, gentler, a little bit of a thawing of the Cold War, and there's an attempt also for him to become the education president and divert some spending domestically. Pell Grants go up to $3.4 billion during his term, one of the larger increases. It really rockets up during Bush and Obama, $5.2 billion, $9.3 billion during Obama, about $7 billion in Pell Grant spending today. It's going to vary a bit. When the economy's worse, Pell Grants tend to go up since they're based on how many people are going to college and more people go to college when they when the economy's bad. When Bill Clinton is elected, there's a lot of hope of a greater peace dividend, of more spending on student loans and grants, including those Pell Grants. They do go up, and Clinton does some things like changing the government to a direct lender instead of using private companies, try to cut down on some of the cost. But in his first term, deficit reductions on his mind and that keeps him from spending a lot. And then by the second half of his first term and into his second, there's a GOP Congress looking to cut spending. So the Pell Grant increase between Reagan going into the Bush presidency is greater than that between Bush and Clinton, where it's almost the same, tiny bit of a bump. There's something else done during the Bush and Clinton years to provide funding for college that does increase costs. And the first thing is we're going to allow unsupported loans where the student borrower starts paying interest while in class, and the government is not guaranteeing or supporting this loan. We're also going to increase that PLUS program that was created in the late 70s and allow parents to pay or borrow to pay up to the full cost of tuition. Clinton's also going to get involved in the loan payment calibrations and say, okay, you can have payments that are just 20% of the borrower's income. That still could be considered a lot when some people pay 50% or more on their housing loan. 2014, this is reduced to 10% of income. Um, the early 90s does see a lot of criticism, just like we saw in the 1940s, a lot of focus on phony schools. Senator Sam Nunn holds an inquiry in 1990 that could have looked like Olin Teague's in the early 1950s. A school bus, a school buses in homeless people for classes. Schools with closed buildings not operating, receiving government funds, somehow taking in billions. A hidden camera shows school membership, um, school membership officers taking in drug addicts off the street, getting them to sign something, and giving them a $100 bill, sending them out the door. The North American Trucking Academy admits 94% of its students are in poor areas, recruited from welfare lines. They have no intention of getting a job as a truck driver. 
Some schools just used false addresses for the students, so collection agencies could never find them. Maxine Waters, congresswoman from the Los Angeles area, has boxes of letters from ripped-off students complaining about these schools. So there's concern, but there still remains an interest in funding higher education. It's just more of that balance is be shifted. In the 89 to 1990 year, tuition at the average public four-year institution is $1,780. Ten years later, it's $3,349, growing at 8.8%. Manageable, we're talking about public institutions, but still something that's going up higher than inflation was then. 2010, that's $7,605. 2020, it's 10740 and it's 38000 at private colleges. So we have presidents that arguably care about the problem, but also costs that are going up at the same time. But, you know, just to put this in perspective, borrowing in general is going up during the 1990s. So debt outstanding on any kind of credit cards. There are 660 million credit cards issued in 1991, and by 2004, you've got $1 billion one. Debt outstanding grows from $181 billion to $644 billion in just about 13 years. So the 90s are a boom time, but also a time fueled by credit. In 1970, 16% of all families have a car credit card. In 2004, 71%. Two things happened in the 90s that are significant to mention here, and we haven't gotten into it yet. In 1991, the six-year statute of limitations on collection of defaulted loans, which had been established in 1985, was completely eliminated by the Higher Education Technical Amendments. In 1998, the seven-year period after which student loan debt could potentially be eliminated through bankruptcy proceedings was also eliminated with the passage of another set of higher education amendments. The only provision left was undue hardship. Very difficult to get. Can't just be being out of work. You have to be unable to work. A certainty of hopelessness, not simply a present inability to fulfill the financial commitment. Now, President Biden has used that type of clause to give a hardship exemptions to people who had a disability, to give forbearance to those um, with student loans during the COVID crisis. A statistic that's important here as we talk about Clinton's presidency because loan debt goes from $200 billion in 1995 to $391 billion in 2005, and that's a pretty big jump. That's double. Then it grows from 2005 to $1.7 trillion in 2022. That's way faster than than the growth. I mean, that's a huge, stunning increase in growth. From $391 billion in 2005 to just 17 years later, $1.7 trillion. This happens while Pell Grants are going up. It happens in two Republican and two Democratic administrations. The policies that drive this are policies that both of those want. I mean, sometimes they're compromising. and Clinton doesn't want to get rid of bankruptcy discharge even after seven years of repayment in 1998. He has to compromise with the Republican Congress and with some more 
some Democrats who are supportive of that. He politics that drive all of this are from both those who want to lend a helping hand and those with other less altruistic goals. In making college available to all foremost, here's the fact. Loans have accelerated. There's other reasons. For instance, people are borrowing more now for graduate education, two and a half times higher, the graduate borrowing in 2017 than in 1995. So we've talked a lot about the solutions gone awry. We've talked about the amount of debt that there is. And we've talked about some of the benefits of people going to college and some of what presidents, different American presidents over time felt. There's one thing we haven't addressed enough. And that's surmised by then-Congressman John Kasich in 1996, who said, well, if you're worried about educational costs, why don't you go ask the college university presidents? And while that's a simple answer, and that's a congressman just trying to dodge maybe some responsibility for what isn't a major, a major issue worthy of Congress's attention, it is worth the question there's so much talk about how do we finance uh, deals. What about the costs? What has driven educational costs up to where Pell Grants that once paid for 60% of college education when they were enacted now in some cases pay for less than 30? Is that the U.S. Senate's fault? Let's look at the colleges and let's look at some of the reasons why costs go up. Here's the problem. Nobody has any one reason. There are a lot of theories, at least a dozen of them. One is the Bennett hypothesis. William Bennett was Reagan's education secretary, and he said, when the government offers more student loans and grants, it enables colleges to raise tuition, negating the purpose. And I want to stop there, and I want to say, Kind of with Bennett on a kind of gut level. It seems to have a lot of common sense appeal. I feel like part of it's got to be true. I mean, if if you can borrow more, you can spend more, you're in competition with other buyers. It seems the same as with houses. If all of a sudden mortgages were eliminated, you know, what would people be paying for houses? If you couldn't get a car loan for a car, what could Detroit, Korea, and Japan charge for cars, right? Um, okay. Now, it was a 1987 in a New York Times ad, in a New York Times op-ed that's gotten a lot of play, this Bennett hypothesis, and it was self-serving. He was part of an administration that wasn't increasing grants as much as people wanted. So throwing out a stat like that. And here's the thing, though. He doesn't have any evidence for it when he states it. So we'll get into that. There's some other theories, not just Bennett's hypothesis. You have the state disinvestment theory. In other words, states have been cutting funding. So the cost of college has to go up. Uh, bigger perception theory. Uh, students as customers theories. Fringe costs theories. No gatekeeper theory. And the cost of college drives the cost of college theory. We'll talk about all these things. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything. SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on 
and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Start with that Bennett hypothesis. The more you grant or the more you loan out, the more costs go up. It's been, makes a lot of common sense, but it's been difficult to prove. The Federal Reserve did a study um, that found it to be true. But other researchers questioned how they isolated grants as a factor versus many other factors forcing college up. And dozens of studies have shown the opposite. Grants are not a factor or even drive costs down. Certainly costs go up without them. Costs go up in years where there aren't many grants. Other studies show that grants may reduce college tuition, but just by a low amount. Rizzo and Ehrenberg's study found that for every $1,000 increase in grants, you drive tuition down just $222. So again, you know, it's the opposite of what Bennett is saying, but there's still an element of his overall point might be made. A study by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in 2015, revised again in 2017, used three different data sets to conduct a study. They looked at what colleges and universities had high and low shares of students borrowing at the maximum amounts allowed under the federal student loan program. They then examined how schools in each group adjusted tuition following a rare increase in that maximum. They use a differences in differences statistical technique to isolate the effect that the change in borrowing limits had on tuition. If higher loan amounts drive up tuition, schools with high shares of students already borrowing at the maximum should have seen larger tuition increases. They concluded that colleges increased tuition between 15 and 60 cents for every dollar in increase in borrowing. And that Federal Reserve Bank is probably the key supportive study of the Bennett hypothesis. But the New York Fed looked at sticker price, what colleges say they charge, and not net price, what students actually pay after financial aid. Far more students at private colleges get financial aid from their college from the government, 67% according to the college board. So while colleges are increasing prices, they're also increasing discounts to make students feel like they were getting a good deal. College discount rates also increased during the time that the New York Fed researchers are looking at, and they might have found different results if they used net price. According to Donald Heller, a dean at the College of Education at Michigan State University, who studied this issue. Other studies say the National Center for Education Statistics in 2001 No association between increases in federal grants or loans 
2003, For Whom the Pell Tolls, Larry D. Single, Joe A. Stone. This study found the most selective private universities raised tuition by much greater factor when Pell, than Pell Grants increased. Public universities did not increase their tuition that much at all. At least this must be true. With all of this loaning, if you took away all of this borrowing for college, who could pay these costs? I mean, are there that many people that would be able to borrow from relatives? It might increase that type of borrowing. It might increase the kind of cash that parents were stashing away instead of spending it on other things, I suppose. But I just can't see it. How about all those administrators colleges are hiring? Between 1993 and 2009, college administrators' positions increased by 60%. Salaries of university presidents, according to one study, was 4,786 in 2013 and go up, goes up 5% per year. Some of them make as many, some of them make over 1 million. Now, maybe it's a perception issue. Value perception of college has increased over time. We're more sold on the concept of education. There's more of those statistics out there that show the value of education. It seems like a good thing, but it actually can drive up the cost, just knowing the value. Men with bachelor's degree earn approximately 900,000 more in median lifetime earnings than high school graduates. Women with bachelor's degree earn 630,000 more. Men with graduate degrees earn 1.5 million more. Women earn 1.1 million more. This is from the Social Security Administration. Men with bachelor's degree would earn 655,000 more median lifetime earnings than high school graduates. Women with bachelor's degrees would earn 450,000 more in median lifetime earnings than high school graduates. You could look at all other things. I mean, we're not even speaking for a moment. I do a history podcast. We're not even talking about the side benefits of having an education to your life as opposed to not having it. The benefits to society of having an education that Linda Johnson spoke about, that we all get something out of the more that uh, people are educated. Put that aside in this analysis. Huge economic benefits. But here's the problem. Once you tell people how valuable it is, you can start to have a run on the bank in terms of people wanting to get it. And more of these studies have come out over time. And so people are now thinking about when they spend on college, that one million, and that's 650,000, and not just the 70, 100, 120,000 that they're going to spend on college. And I think that's good in a way. I think that's good. It's good not to have a short-sighted decision. But even though those stats are good, saying you're going to earn a million dollars, that million dollars is not handed to you in cash. It's going to come over a lifetime. And they are numerable stories of people making over 100000 living paycheck to paycheck. Real estate is expensive. Housing costs are expensive in a lot of parts of the United States, particularly where these professionals with these type of incomes live. So when, and if you, you're going to have kids, you're going to get a car, you're going to have to commute. There's all of these expenses that go along with that extra money. You don't just receive it. If you sell yourself on that too much, that look, I can't be frugal at all about my college choice for my kid or my own college choice because there's a million dollars waiting for me over the rainbow, even if that's not a lie, 
Uh, it sort of is because you don't, again, you know, that million comes over a lifetime with a lot of stuff. The gatekeeper theory, Atlantic Monthly notes that universities are expensive for the same reason MRIs are. There's no central mechanism to reduce costs. Colleges can extract what they can extract. Nothing in the Pell Grants, for instance, say you may only use this for a college that is controlling its cost. Whereas other systems like healthcare financing, for instance, has some of those mechanisms. Obamacare has some of those mechanisms in it, you know, looking for cost control. You don't do that in higher education for a variety of reasons, politically unsellable right now. But yet that is present. How much of that is affecting costs? Hard to say. College is a service. That's a factor. While industrial plants can add robots, other places are adding software. Yeah, you're using a lot of software in in education, but when you're using software in business, that's reducing costs, increasing productivity. You have industrial robots and things like that. In education, it's primarily a service, person-based business. And in fact, the people who teach are costly. That relates to a related cost factor. That costs in loans may be increasing the costs and loans. What do we mean? In college, you have to be taught by a professor. Those professors got their education, some of them recently, and experienced the same cost increases that students are now experiencing in their time. They have loans they have to pay for. Their salaries have to be commensurate to the cost that they experience. Cost of education has gone up, thus the cost of workers in the education field has gone up. Colleges need to act like a business. You might hear that again. And there's one place that I'm going to isolate. I don't hear a lot of talk about that I feel colleges do a not so great job of acting like a business. But in a lot of ways, they do act like a business. Like, for instance, in sales and their marketing, they do quite well can spend up to a $10 billion annually marketing their services, particularly with online courses. This marketing of these services finds more students, increases the amount of education spending, increases the amount of loans. They also pay commissions. They can pay as much as 30% of a tuition on, say, an online course that may not cost the college as much. What about states cutting that higher education aid? We talked about that. People have tried to isolate that as a factor. It seems to be a small factor, but in some states, they've actually increased spending, and college costs have still gone up. A look at Indiana, for instance, from 2008 to 2018, found that state spending went up 31% on higher education, but costs went up 16%, according to a 2019 Center on Budget and Budget Policies Priorities Report. And state cutbacks may have made state colleges more entrepreneurial. So again, you know, acting like a business. Well, when colleges act like a business, one of the things they do is force out state students, try to bring in more students from out of state. That's going to drive up costs in other ways. Uh, But first of all, their tuition is more, sometimes three times the size in state. Also, if you're going to attract someone from out of state, you've got to have a lot of the fringe benefits now associated with your college. But one critical way that schools do not act like a business is this. They do not tend to specialize, not in the way that American businesses do. All right, Coca-Cola makes soda. It can also expand into iced tea, expand into water. I mean, maybe some light food items. You know, these are all kind of stretches that brands make. 
It's all in focus. It does not make cars. But colleges, even if they are known for something, tend to offer every major, or most of them. They do not specialize, not nearly enough. Specialization would allow them to cut costs. It would allow them to only compete for professors in the field that they are the specialty at. And it would allow them to focus materials purchases, buildings, just to service the area that they are good at. Be known for that and not offer everything. There's a little desire to do this, little talk about even doing this. Alumni want their offspring often to go to the same college. The offspring may have a different idea of what they want to do. Colleges want to attract a lot of students, and students have varied interests. So they all set themselves up as offering everything. That is probably not sustainable, but it's going to be. What about all those philosophy majors, you know, driving up costs because people are taking philosophy courses, or graduating and not getting a job or humanities? Well, business is the number one major at the most popular colleges, the colleges that are the least selective, where most people go. Business is the number one major. Science, technology, engineering, all rate high up there in terms of majors. Um, you do have some humanities. You do have psychology being an increased major. I always, this is my least favorite reason um, for college costs or college loans going up because people are getting degrees that they can't get a job. I have seen, uh, you know, humanities majors succeed. In a lot of what business is is communication. That's the most you're going to have to talk to, <laughs> you have to get on that phone with the customer that's not happy. You're going to have to talk to the employees that are disgruntled. You're going to have to write something. You're going to have to relate with other departments what you're doing. Even if you're in a tech job, you know you're going to have to communicate with other departments about what you're doing and how it impacts them. A lot of it is, humanities are, are variable. I remember working for a, um, a boss that was a philosophy major and he's, gone on to run all sorts of companies and departments and things like that. I don't buy that one. I'll leave it there. I mean, I'll leave it there with this. I'm a guy who wrote memos on paper and handed it to a dude who would walk around and hand it to hand the memos out in a mail cart to other people in the office. I'm, I'm old enough to know the, the guy's look on his face when you when did a CC of the whole office. You know, he didn't like it very much because he'd have to tell him, <laughs> let's see that. And then with the invention of email, um, with the, with the, I should say the invention of email happens in the 70s, but the coming of email in, in mid-90s or so saw that change. Writing became only more important, not less important. Uh, sure, you don't want to sit there and write essays to people. That's bad. But um, learning how to communicate is essential. I don't really see that argument at all. I don't like to rule out arguments, you know, with me as the judge, but that one I will. Here's something else. And again, going back to this kind of perceived value point, 65% of jobs require a four-year degree. So some of this problem isn't in the academic sector at all. It's in the private sector. There's a requirement to have the four-year degree. So the cost of a four-year degree, the demand for a four-year degree goes up. If businesses looked more at associate's degrees, if they looked more at people who didn't have a degree for certain functions, um, you know, and some are being forced to in, in this labor shortage, 
The Business Roundtable has a multiple pathways program to encourage businesses to look at people who have either a two-year degree or no degree. Um, A survey by the Burning Glass Institute found that 51% of jobs required a four-year degree in 2017. That went down to 44% in 2021. Two-thirds of workers do not have a four-year college degree. If you keep making that the requirement, you know, so some of this is cultural, right? Because are those, are all those businesses in every HR department, um, and really in every CEO's desk, uh, do they really think that they really need that four year requirement that they couldn't get a benefit from a two year degree, say? Um, I think not. I think it's happening more cultural. It's accepted. This is what we do. And HR people screening will screen out those that don't have that requirement. And the more those are things that we probably could take by the horns if we were so inclined to do so. And it's definitely a factor driving the cost up. Um, Finally, you know, we have to get into all the extra cost fees, clubs, new buildings, um, Arms races between colleges to build new dorms and new buildings. And sports. I want to say it's not unimportant to have a sports team with your college. And it's going to be something that you use. I came from a college, you know, good old Stockton State in New Jersey where, you know, I mean, Division Three basketball, you know, that's, that's the Ospreys. Go Ospreys. But... What you don't get as an alumni, I will always say over the years, is that networking ability, that ability to talk about where you went to college with other people because they simply don't know, Um, the ability to NCAA tournaments and being able to root for your team if they're in it. All of these things are not unimportant. But a story in the Washington Post where junior Caitlin Waltzinger, who went to James Madison University, was assigned by her student newspaper to dissect the tuition bill and what's in it, and found that the bill was laden with all kinds of fees. In fact, her yearly cost was $23,000. In there was 10%, $2,300 to pay for the sports team. As someone who worked two jobs, a full-time student who was not involved in sports, she was shocked that she was paying 10% for a sports team. But it's more than just those who are playing sports that are going to have to pay for that fee. This was separate from student activities. It was separate from clubs, not inclusive of the gym that the university had and fees for that. Schools in Division One, according to the NCAA, collected $1.2 billion in fees, and it grew 51% in one decade. So I'm not going to say that you know sports don't have a value. You know, if you go to school at Clemson or Duke, you can't discount some of that just informal benefit of that. Uh, where are you going to have an alumni networking thing if there's not like a basketball game to watch? I've seen col- I've seen a college, my own, that, that doesn't have that, that tries to set up alumni events with, you know, much more difficulty. You know, it's going to help scholarships too and everything like that. It's just going to help drive publicity to the school that otherwise they might have to spend billions marketing for. We get it. Um you, you can't discount that. But again, the, those teams, the additional buildings, enhanced dormitories, you know, no doubt that, you know, it's it's really the same as I said in a podcast about healthcare back in 2009 when the issue was being debated. 
We're using the same word, healthcare, but it describes a packet of services that are totally different from what it was in the 1950s, completely different from the 1850s, very different from the 1790s, right? We now say higher education or college to describe a bucket of things that are very different from where college might have been even in the 1960s. You also have more American college students who live away from home. Campuses in Canada or Europe tend to have fewer dormitories, dining halls. I've read an article about universities in France where they talk about, like, you might have trouble finding where the buildings are. Um, What a university in America, what we expect out of college is different. It's probably best to say different because I think you could argue about how important that college experience is to the life of an American. But then... When you look at the cost of loans in colleges, you have to reconsider it as well and say, well, how much of it is better? You know, again, I go back to the sports, go back to the super dorms, go back to the the value of the education in terms of income. Sure, you could assess all those things and say those are real benefits, but how much are we appropriately pricing it when we're going to have to pay? Are you, are you applying the same standards you apply to other purchases you make? According to a survey from Intelligent.com, in February, 21% of Democrats won't support Biden in 2024 without action on student loans, compared to 20% of Republicans and 27% of independent voters. 34% of Americans are somewhat or very dissatisfied with Biden's handling of the student loan debt crisis. And three in four voters are considering midterm candidate stances on student loan debt cancellation. So Biden's under pressure. Biden's proposed $10,000. At the time I'm recording this, this is still open. He says July or August 2022 is going to unveil this. It seems to be, if you ask me, a little bit of a midterm strategy. I'd predict, if I put my crystal ball you know, in my hand, I'd predict it goes more than the $10,000. Um, I'm recording this about two weeks before it's going to air, so... You know, forgive me if it already happened. Um, I figure he says 10000 is going to go a little bit higher, but not much because there's two sides to this argument. One is this is important. This helps the economy. This affects a great group of Americans. And there were some practices in the past that could be considered unfair, little unethical, um, perhaps taking advantage of people at a very vulnerable time. On the other hand, people will say, hey, I had loans. I paid them off. I went to college. My family figured. Now that, you know, you could look at all the sides of that argument. I think if you're of an older age, I do think you have to consider that the cost is much higher now for college than it was for, say, the baby boom, that there were options, including defaulting with not as many consequences as some of the dire consequences here. You know, there were at least in the early 70s, 1% 1% or so of, of defaulters that were able to clear their student loans through bankruptcy, and the student loans weren't as large. Um, you could argue that, hey, I'm paying for someone else's college. And there, I think it's obviously, there's some truth to it. It's taxpayers paying for someone else's college. That's true on a wide range of things. 
And I think you do have to ask the question is how committed we are to this ideal that Americans who are qualified should be able to go to college or that every American should be able to go to college. How committed are you to it? If you are, then that argument, I think, has to fade a bit. Um, there are other tax exemptions that certainly do not apply to Americans broadly that, in effect, all taxpayers are paying for. One would be the mortgage um, interest deduction on a mortgage, where there's a much smaller percent. There's a small percent of taxpayers now who itemize, who actually get it. Um, there's a, plenty of other situations where we as taxpayers pay for the cost that someone else incurred. This is just a new one and one that's heavily publicized and heavily clear because it's someone else's debt. Um, the other argument, we talked all of, that's why I wanted to be sure in this episode, I'm not just going to sit here and talk about loans or talk about the Sally May monster and how bad it is and then everybody's, we're so terrorized by this Sally May thing, let's just get rid of it or something and that's all our problems. I wanted to talk about also the increasing costs because there is that argument out there. If you forgive 10,000, people are just going to, more people are going to go to college now and they're going to think that they're going to at some point get that paid off. I don't think that's a very good assumption to make, but we probably didn't think that there would be so many stimulus checks over the past 25 years or so than, than what we've gotten, right? It's highly unusual the government to just write its citizens a check, but now it's happened. So what history, I think, adds here is that there's a near universal cutting across party lines and cutting across from relatively ancient presidents to modern ones, a desire that uh, more Americans have access to higher education. We've succeeded, but maybe we took the fast track in merely encouraging loans versus grants and or doing anything about educational costs at a policy level. I'm sure you have opinions about it too. would love to hear them. I'm at Twitter at MyHist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Got scores of episodes on that site, hundreds of episodes on the Apple Podcast site. If you go to visit us on Apple Podcasts or any other service, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you do like the program, tell someone about it on your blog, tell about it on Twitter. Give us a shout out. It really helps. I want to thank you for listening.